Our opening our our opening words this morning our opening words this morning are from uh, Titi Lope Sonuga, a Nigerian poet, civil engineer, and actress. <laughs> they are called becoming. When the world unravels before you and even crumbling stones, when everything you dare to touch is fire and all around you is ash and smoke, remember this. Rock bottom is a perfect place for rebuilding. Remember that you are your mother's daughter your grandmother's answered prayers, a whole bloodline of bend in response to raging winds. There is nothing broken here, nothing damaged or destroyed. Each scar a badge of honor. Every misstep is a victory dance waiting to happen. You are a woman coming, learning the complicated language of forgiveness of the universe. Your heart is just a muscle. It needs and you were born for this sort of heavy lifting. You were born one part saint, one part warrior woman. Loving yourself without shame is the most important thing you will ever have to fight for.
Welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. I am Sheila Rose. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. And I'm so glad you're here this morning. Whether you're in the room or joining us on Facebook. Visitors and guests, we hope that you got a blue name tag so that we know who you are and can welcome you and answer any questions you might have. We love talking about why this community is so important to us, and we'd like to hear from you what you're looking for. We hope you'll join us after the platform and cookies in the lobby and the social hall. Also, please consider sharing your email with us on the program. We can add you to our mailing list. You can drop it in the collection basket as it passes later in the platform service. I want to remind everyone uh, to your electronic so that you could be fully present this morning, although we'd love it if you check in on social media. And now I invite Josh Blender to read our statement of purpose so that we might hear our shared values in each other's voice. The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith and goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other through life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. If you are new to our community of children and adults, we warmly invite you to join us as we work together for a world where love and justice cross all borders. Thank you, Josh. As Josh lights our community candle, I invite you all to join me in the candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter for all. I want to welcome uh, those of you uh, joining us this morning. Uh, if you have an empty seat, um, I, I guess there's there's no need for that. No <laughs> <laughs> we ring this bell in solidarity with people around the world, especially those in Syria who experienced a chemical attack and all those experiencing violence. As we listen to the chime. Let us remember our connection to each other and the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world. And let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love.
I want to invite you to settle in for a time of meditation. That may mean putting your feet on the floor or finding a comfortable way to sit, closing your eyes if you'd like, or focusing on the floor in front of you. Take a breath in with me and let it out. Take another one and out. As you continue to breathe deeply but normally, fully, I invite you to notice your body, to feel your body in the chair, your feet touching the floor, your hands and arms as they rest on your lap. your neck and shoulders. Perhaps as you breathe in and out, you might release them a bit. Feel your hair, every hair on your head, whether there are many or few as they tickle the back of your neck, or lie flat, feel them part of your body. Take another breath, feeling the breath this time, imagining the oxygen coming into your lungs, the carbon dioxide being breathed out. Imagine now the blood moving through your veins, your heart pumping. As you breathe in and out in the silence, send that breath, that blood, that life force within you to every part of your body this morning, from the top of your head to the tips of your toes.
Cynthia and Marie, thank you so much for that beautiful music. That was just lovely. And thank you to Sheila, who is officiating for the first time this morning and doing a wonderful job. I'm so delighted to um, add her to our officiant team. Thank you. Well, I am in a, a good mood. I'm always in a good mood Sunday morning. As I came in this morning, um, someone uh, stopped me and said, oh, wow, you look so um, awake. <laughs> <laughs> which was uh, a minor miracle, perhaps. Um, and chipper, they said, you look chipper. And I thought, oh yes, I feel chipper. Actually, I'm just a chipper person. You know, it's my, it's my personality, or at least I used to think it was just sort of my personality or what I liked. A couple of years ago, or uh, last year, the staff did a training um, where we delved into our Enneagram types. I don't know if any of you have done work with the Enneagram. But um, it's like anything, right? It's a way to understand yourself more deeply. And for some folks, it works well. And for others, it doesn't make sense. <clears throat> but each Enneagram type has sort of a, a set of characteristics that go with it, um, ones that are positive and ones that can be more challenging, like people. And uh, after quite some work, it was determined that my Enneagram type was seven. Uh, which is um, the enthusiast. Uh, the enthusiast who actually can't really focus on anything for very long and instead sort of flits from one thing to another, um, chipper and excited about each one. I wasn't sure about that typing and then turned to the rest of the staff and they all went, <laughs> that sounds about right, actually. Um, and so that was uh, affirming for me. And then I started to read more about sevens and, um, and to learn that one of the things that Enneagram sevens really struggle with is because they are enthusiastic and like new things and like to sort of find things that they enjoy, they have trouble sitting with pain. And I thought that might be challenging for my choice of career struggling to sit with pain. It shows up sometimes on staff, um, especially as we plan Sunday mornings. Bailey is not an Enneagram 7. Um, she's a, a 4. And, um, and 4s really are able to be fully in their deep emotional experiences. And so often, planning a Sunday platform service with Bailey and me will sound like this. Oh, and then let's have something sort of uplifting. No, we should make them cry. <laughs> but Bailey, don't you think that will be a lot? It will be right. It will be right. That's about, that's about right. And she's, she's right, typically. And so then we make you cry. It's, it's a good time. We're not, actually. It's not a good time, which is the idea, after all. One of the things that I appreciate about this job, in fact, about this career, this um, vocation, is that it asks me, with my enthusiastic self, to be present to the pain and suffering around me. Actually, it's not even just this profession, but anyone who is within a community like this one. 
part of what we do in a community like this is to be present to each other. It's right there in our statement of purpose, as Josh read it this morning, that we joyfully celebrate together, yay, and support each other through life. And the support each other often looks like making it through the hard things being with each other through the suffering. It was moving to me to hear Josh read the statement of purpose this morning. Josh is one of the relatively few folks in our community who is now an adult and grew up in our Sunday school program. And I thought about the way that being in a community over a lifetime gives you the opportunity to bring to it your deepest pain, the difficult things in your life, and also to see, to see the pain of others around you. That as, as hard as that is, as not cheerful as that is, it is perhaps the most important thing that we do and are with each other. Felix Adler, who is the founder of Ethical Culture, actually thought that the experience of seeing another suffer was one of the core reasons that people turned to religion. He believed that religion, um, the religious impulse came from sort of three different pains, and the second one of them was the experience of seeing suffering that we cannot alleviate. The passage that he, um, that he wrote about this actually um, uses the metaphor of being on the shoreline and seeing out in the water people drowning and being unable to save them. Adler was a, a, a beautiful writer, and I think that image is so powerful to help us to really feel, right, on a gut level what it is to see another's suffering and be unable to fix it, unable to solve it for them. And he felt that that experience, that human experience of seeing suffering was one of the reasons that people turn to religion, both to traditional religion and to this new thing he was creating, this new thing which is now our movement of ethical culture. It's funny that that should have been sort of the start in so many ways for Adler as he began this movement because it's actually one of the kind of charges against humanism and progressive religion in general by folks in more traditional religion or conservative religious traditions, conservative theological traditions that humanism or progressive religion doesn't sufficiently address the experience of human suffering, doesn't offer answers for suffering as redemptive or as part of a larger plan, doesn't offer the possibility or the promise of a, a new tomorrow in a different realm, and therefore is inadequate to address our experience of suffering in this world. 
and I always take those kinds of charges seriously. I want to understand them fully and be able to respond to them to make sure that, in fact, we do have some way to respond to suffering that is full enough, that is deep enough. One of the ways that that charge has been used has actually not been just by um, the outside looking in, but even within progressive religious movements and humanist movements in general. And it's been used in a particularly insidious and, I think, damaging way. <clears throat> even within our own movement, I have heard folks say that because we do not offer um, a concept of redemptive suffering, we as a movement are unable to really serve communities that have experienced suffering in significant and centuries-long ways. In fact, that idea is used sometimes to say that really we can't be a tradition for communities of color, for people in marginalized identities, because we won't offer what it is that they need having experienced suffering. Yesterday, I was at the um, Secular Social Justice Conference along with a couple of you. Secular Social Justice Con is put on by the American Humanist Association, and uh, it is an opportunity for people to gather together and talk about justice entirely by humanists and atheists and agnostics who are people of color. All of the speakers are people of color um, from within the humanist or secular movement. I always like going to conferences where I feel like the conference that I'm attending is a little mini version of the world I would like to live in, you know? The bathrooms were all changed to gender neutral because just that's how we do it, you know? And all the speakers were people of color who were, you know, incredible experts in their field, brilliant thinkers, um, offering this to all of us. There was sort of assumptions um, that, of course, we all understood systemic racism. So it was certainly that sort of experience, being able to go to a conference and think, oh, I'll just live here in this conference for a while. I just pretend that this is what I'll see in the world around us. And it certainly gave the lie to the idea that humanism cannot serve people of color and communities of color. Because I will tell you that every speaker there identified in some way as humanist or secular, and every one of them spoke about and out of an experience of suffering as they focused on the justice work that they were called to in their lives. So I'm not super interested in hearing that particular charge again, but what I am interested in is listening to their answers. Their answers about how humanism can respond to suffering. Because in fact, that's really what the conference was focused around. This conference about justice in many ways was grounded in the experience of systemic racism and systemic oppression, anti-trans um, and homophobia in our country sexism, all of the ways that oppressions are linked, ableism, all of those pieces that we experience in the world. 
one of the speakers was a Baltimore activist um, who, uh, and community organizer who works against the drug war, um, working to meet people who use drugs where they are and to help them um, with whatever, as she put it, whatever would help them to feel most healthy. Her name is Rajani Gudlavaletti. And she said something that I thought was so helpful. She was talking about harm reduction techniques in, uh, in working um, with people who use drugs. And um, harm reduction techniques are things that meet folks where they are and that provide uh, solutions that don't carry judgment, but rather that seek to reduce harm to the person using and to the community around them as well. So things like needle exchange programs, right? Uh, are, that's a, an example of a harm reduction technique. And as she was talking about this, she, she linked it in to humanism. She said harm reduction and humanism both value social responsibility. And that to me became a through line as I heard these speakers yesterday talking about the call to justice and asking those gathered there to see that that call to justice is intimately linked to humanist values, to who we are as a movement. And in fact, that that call to justice is one way that humanists respond to the suffering that we see around us, to the folks drowning as we stand on the shore. Several years ago, there was an article in UU World, which is the um, monthly magazine that the Unitarian Universalist Association puts out. It was written by Colin Bassin, who is a UU minister who is uh, white, but, but centered his work in this particular article within the um, framework of black humanism. The article is called Black Humanism's Response to Suffering. And Basin talks about the challenge in humanism, right? Um, how do we respond to suffering when we don't understand it to be redemptive, when we don't understand it to be part of a plan and therefore leading towards some greater good? He talks uh, in the article about Bill Jones. Bill Jones is the um, African-American theologian and author of Is God a White Racist? which was a, an amazing and groundbreaking book uh, a, a couple of decades ago now. Um, Basin says, Bill Jones in Is God a White Racist posits that suffering is not redemptive and that describing it as such makes the oppressed complicit in their own oppression. It is foundational for the development of black humanist theology, this concept um, around suffering. Basin goes on, in Jones's view, any form of Christianity that denies human responsibility for suffering or conceives of the pain of the oppressed as salvific is not Christianity at all. It is, and these are Jones's words, white-anity, a religion of oppression. The antidote is not a more liberal form of Christianity or a Christianity that places priority on the needs of the oppressed, Basin writes. These theologies still do not place enough responsibility for ending suffering in human hands. Instead, the antidote is to pay special attention to the reasons for suffering and, if possible, to try to combat it. It is to embrace the humanist position that something can be done about human suffering 
because so much of it is a human creation. Now, I want to be clear and careful here that that idea that so much of suffering is of human creation and therefore part of human responsibility is not owned entirely by humanists, right? We see that within liberation theology, within the, the Catholic movement. We see it often in progressive Christian traditions. We see it in tikkun olam, the Jewish concept of the broken world, which requires our healing. So I don't want to suggest that our siblings of faith in different traditions don't also carry that with them. But I do think it is specifically and deeply a part of humanist understanding to see in suffering, to look in suffering for what is of human creation. Where is suffering because humanity has created it? And then to own that responsibility, to see it deeply as our work to respond to it. The humanist response to suffering in that way becomes about collective and community support. It is, in a sense, corporate, our response to suffering. Not corporate like, you know, corporations, <clears throat> but corporate like body. The body gathered together responds as one to the suffering that we see around us. But of course, that's easier to understand, I think, when we are talking about the kind of suffering that comes up because of institutional racism or because of some other human-made evil. How, I wonder, does it show up when the suffering we are talking about is our own personal sadnesses? Because every life brings with it illness, death, loss. We may be able, as humanists, to easily see this kind of community and collective response to suffering out there in the big world, but how does that inform how we show up at the hospital bed or the funeral home? I would argue that in some ways it is not much different. That there is a sitting with, a collective response still, that allows us to be present with someone suffering from very personal loss. My colleague Erica Hewitt, a Unitarian Universalist minister, wrote about this recently. People are in pain all around us all of the time. How can we be companions to those in pain, she asked. And she told a story. Last week, the crowd on a New York City subway herded me into a corner against someone else's seat. You can imagine, can't you, right up close next to it. A man in his 20s with red eyes, his face etched with grief. Hewitt wrote, when I'm around people in pain, sometimes the energy of their sadness rolls over me like an invisible ocean wave. If I remain passive, its force can almost knock me down. So as the subway rumbled us uptown, I tightened my grip on the bar overhead, closed my eyes, and held the stranger in loving kindness. 
As I breathed in, I imagined absorbing the thick, oily smoke of his pain. Each time I breathed out, I imagined myself as a conduit, drawing love down toward us and pooling it around the stranger. I matched his pain, breath for breath. The subway, Hewitt finishes, screeched to a halt at my stop, and as my eyes flew open, they landed on the stranger who was using his sweater to wipe tears off his cheek. Our eyes met. Before I could look away, he offered a half smile. I smiled back. Hewitt goes on to note that Buddhists will recognize what she did as a kind of version of Tonglen meditation. We've talked about Tonglen here in this community before. It is the practice of sitting deeply with pain yourself or your own or someone else's. On the in-breath, really noticing, experiencing, and holding that pain. And then on the out-breath, sending out love. Using yourself, as Hewitt describes it, as a conduit, as a kind of transformer. That's how I think about it. Transforming the pain that you experience or see around you into love. Hewitt says, it is to help one another transform pain into something holdable. To help one another transform pain into something holdable. I love that phrase. It makes me think about our work holding each other. Holding the pain that each one of us experience sitting next to that hospital bed or in the funeral home. When someone has experienced a setback, an illness, or a death in this community, one of the things we often do is have cards outside to sign. In fact, you'll find a big giant card, big enough for children's drawings for Melissa, our director of lifelong learning, who is in the hospital right now. And it's amazing to me what I hear back from folks who receive those cards. You know, there's nothing particularly special about them. They are beautiful cards, actually. They're, the cards themselves are quite special. They're, they're made by one of the artists in our community. But inside, people have written just the little notes anybody would write, thinking of you, wishing you well, hoping for healing, good luck, be strong. And yet those little notes added up, even simply the signatures, they make a difference to people. Folks will call me or email me. They'll take a snapshot of the card and put it on Facebook so that people can see what it meant to them. Simply the experience of knowing that someone is holding it with them, not fixing it, not changing it, but holding alongside with them the pain they have in their own lives. We send the cards, too, when people have had something wonderful happen, when a baby has been born. And, you know, it's, it's uh, overwhelming in general to be a new parent. People don't have a whole lot of time for thank yous. I'm sure that they like receiving the cards, but I've never once had the same reaction 
It's wonderful to share another person's joy, to celebrate with them. And yet, sharing and holding another's pain is different, deeper somehow. Adler wrote about that, in fact. He wrote, the fact that there is a spiritual power in us, that is to say, a power which testifies to the unity of our life with the life of others. The unity of our life with the life of others, which impels us to regard others as other selves. This fact comes home to us even more forcibly in sorrow than in joy. It is thrown into clearest relief on the background of pain. That, I think, is where our response to individual pain is indeed collective. Even when it is simply one person expressing care to another, holding someone's pain with them, their suffering with them, in that very moment, we are articulating, experiencing a sense of our unity with each other. The deepest sense of ourselves as a body, collective, connected to each other. With all of this sense of our response being collective, I do wonder what humanism has to say to the internal work each of us do. When it is not someone else's suffering that you are watching, but your own your own pain and loss and grief. If I would charge humanism with anything that might stick around suffering, I would say it is our desire sometimes to move past our own experience of suffering. That may just be me remember that Enneagram thing, everything's fine. But I hear it over and over again from folks wanting to, to get past the hard part, past the grief, past the lamentation, over to the other side as quickly as possible. I think humanism offers a way to look at suffering not as redemptive, but as meaningful. A number of years ago, I remember a West member who gave a platform talking about her husband's death. She talked about her experience in the years that followed his death as being full of moments of what she described as grace. Moments of unexpected care and connection. Now she was very clear. She would have skipped every single one of those moments if she could have kept her husband. But since she couldn't, since she did experience that suffering and grief and loss, she was able to find meaning along the path, to find moments that reminded her of the potential for wholeness. Another colleague of mine, Teresa Ines Soto, a Unitarian Universalist minister, was in a fire earlier this year, which left her with significant burns and recovery. 
she wrote this poem recently, and it speaks to me just as our opening poem did of the wholeness that we hold even when we are broken. This is about snacks and almost dying, but not graphic. This poem is about potato chips, or not. I like the barbecue, but not so sweet. This is not teriyaki or too smoky. Good grief, whoever thought that smoke was the main thing has never watched it pour listless into the face of the patient sky who waits to drink it. It stays in your hair and your clothes like a half-retrieved memory, jammed, broken, skipping. Does that reference make me old? So what? Old is a code word for mostly grateful, but a mouthful of hair, come on. I also like the salt and pepper ones, which are more fancy and specific and make the corners of your mouth hot. Last year, I almost died, but I did not. Way to go, tenacious heart. I hereby officially thank you for your beats, the too many, the not enough, and the beats that came through after all, even when you had every reason to give up, but you declined, both impolitely and enraged. I hear people talk a lot about their best life, and that's cool. I accept my best life as if it were an Oscar, Emmy, Grammy, Tony, but also my messy life. Heartbreaks and secret shames, unfair chances and betrayals, because they are the awards that everyone has but forgets to show. The S plus, the gold star, the imperfection that is enough, the script of being human upon which we each improvise. I love you, keep going everything will be all right. My healing skin still hurts, though. I'll bet yours does sometimes, too. For me, encapsulates that possibility of brokenness and wholeness at once. Of owned suffering of our lives, not suffering we chose, not suffering we should have, not suffering to something greater, but suffering will rest meaning, full meaning. Our own individual that we hold most intimately and deeply within us connects us ultimately more fully to others. We humanists live both on big levels on the most intimate and personal of ones. Just yesterday, Facebook from Gregory Boyd Gregory is on the UUA board of, and I don't know what prompted this quote, but it spoke so perfectly. All I am, he wrote, is because of us. 
people connected by the ancestors and contemporaries for time. There is no me without we. The we that takes responsibility to change all that hurts in the world because of human strife and human fault. And the we that exists most intimately How shall we become more whole today?
This is the time when we share our reflections on the platform just presented, how what we have heard resonates in our own lives. I'll bring the microphone around, so please raise your hand and begin by sharing your first name. Does anyone have a brief reflection to share? 